This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me once again this week, as always, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing, who is recovering here. It's the end of the week. He's almost fully recovered from um, a little frightful experience on Sunday, right, Matthew? Well, Chris, I'm so glad you had to bring that up, but yes, yes, <laughs> my uh, my 49ers, they lost, and uh, it was disappointing, but you know, it's just football, so I yeah. shouldn't really be all that upset by what a 20-year-old does with the ball, um, right. And uh, but it was well, disappointing. Well, I didn't bring it up to, to make you feel bad or, or anything like that, it's just, you know, we talk about it so much on the show, and, and we mentioned it last time that it was coming up, so oh, gotta let man. people know what happened. And Yeah, that's and true, you, you know, and, and uh, it's just sports ball, so it's, it's, it's just okay. just sports ball. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, instead of talking about sports ball, I don't know, you know, if Christopher L. Bennett ever actually played sports ball, maybe he did. And if he did, I don't know if he was as good at it as he is at writing, but his first book in The Rise of the Federation was was fantastic. And finally, we're getting closer and closer to Tower of Babel, which I've been waiting for. And I was blown away the other day when I saw the cover of this book. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, this is a beautiful, beautiful cover. It, it's got the uh, the refit enterprise the nx01 um on the front as well as uh you've got captain malcolm reed ship uh, on there as well a really beautiful um shot here of these two ships fantastic work and i don't know about you but man it just makes me want to go out and buy this book like right now um, yeah same I, I looked it up actually in ibooks i'm like can can i get it now can i get it now yeah, no. this is this is really good. I mean, and this is going to be continuing that storyline. Um, you know, so uh, Archer is is an admiral at this point. And he's really wanting to bring all these diverse inhabitants together with the United Federation of Planets, and he's hoping to bring in the the Rigel system and and really jumpstart the the Federation's growth. Um, but uh, meanwhile. On the other side of the galaxy, the uh, Orion Syndicate is is recruiting new allies of its own to really kind of beat the Federation in its own game. So this little guy is going to be a great book. It, you're going to have Captain Malcolm Reed and Captain T'Pol and their crews working um, to, to really 
help track down the the captives before the system is is plunged into all-out war um, and creating another war that the federation really doesn't want to be a part of at this point so um yeah christopher l bennett's first book was fantastic and i really can't wait um to see where we're going to go next uh it's great to be in this time period because as um we know it's it's just one of those things anything can happen because we don't really know anything about this time period so it makes it really exciting to to read definitely and we talked about the first book here on the show as a feature and and we'll do that again with this one once it comes out yes. we've had a chance to read it so uh, it, it's exciting and i've i've actually been pushing these books on the ready room as well and other, maybe even warp 5 of course warp 5 with it being enterprise but Outside of the realm of Enterprise, when the topic has come up about early days of the Federation and how the different races work together and all, I've been pointing people to these books and saying, we've got to go read the first one because they actually get into that and how the technology meshes. And and this one from the description feels to me like it's going to be a meteor story because we've already gotten past that, bringing everyone together and, and the, the technical starship Um jargon you know that was in the first book and how they're getting things uh working together and and here this sounds like a a really uh interesting journey that they're going to go on a journey to babel in fact yeah exactly so i really do think that this this is um one of the highlights of the year uh, i believe for me in the star trek universe um and uh, because we only do get one enterprise book a year um it's really special for me that they they have one decided to continue the series um and and two um that they've been so good so i really do encourage anyone and everyone who is a star trek fan if you're a star trek enterprise fan or and you just love good books go out and get these um let's make you know uh this one at a new york times bestseller so that we can continue to get more enterprise stories because i personally really want to see this story continue and i know you do as well chris yeah, definitely. And that's going to come out on March 25th. So we do have a couple of months to wait, but we will uh, get our hands on it as soon as we can. And like I said, do a feature on it here as well. Really discuss that one. Well, that's the only news item we have today, Matthew. I was last night, this morning as well, I was popping open my iPad, trying to find out, is that next comic out yet? Because I, I really wanted to talk about that one, Captain yeah, Jane definitely. Tiberia Kirk. And it turns out... One more week to go. January 29th is when it's supposed to drop. So on the next show, we'll be able to talk to each other about what we think about this female counterpart of James T. Kirk. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of fun, Chris. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, it's it's really weird. I just just reading a little bit, a few of the names here. There's Jane Tiberia Kirk. There's Lieutenant Nanandi Uhuro. Lieutenant Pavlana Chekhov, Lieutenant Hikari Sulu. Hikari means oh. light in Japanese, by the way. And Chief Engineer Marjorie Scott, Yeoman Jason <laughs> Rand, and Lieutenant Commander Spock. So excellent. I don't know what to think about this. It's going to be very interesting. All right. Well, but but again, we'll talk about that next week once it comes out. And we're going to jump into the feature now. But before we do that, 
We'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, and that's Audible.com. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks, over 150,000 books for you to choose from, lots of Star Trek books, and unfortunately not the latest books since they're not producing audio anymore for Star Trek at the moment, but lots and lots of Star Trek books on there anyway, plus lots of other classics and current bestsellers. You know, most books these days, they come out in hardcover or paperback when they're new, and an audio version comes out at the same time. So you can grab those over there at Audible as well. But Matthew, I know you have a book that you're really fond of that you can get on Audible, a Star Trek book. You know, Chris, uh, I'm going to recommend The Return by William Shatner. Now, I'm sure that a lot of Star Trek fans are laughing at me right now, but that's right. I love these books because um, I, you know, I love Kirk coming back to life. He shouldn't have died in generations like a poser anyway. Um, and so William Shatner took it upon himself to make sure that, it, you know, the good captain returns. And as the uh, promo for the book said originally when you when you um, looked at the cover, it legends never die. And so Kirk coming back was fantastic. Uh, this involved a huge battle with the board. This is way before Destiny happened. Um, and the great thing about Shatner's books is, you know, they take place in their own little universe. So you you don't have to know anything about any other books. You can just jump in and enjoy them. And I really had a good time with this. This is actually narrated by William Shatner as well. So you know it's going to be good because Shatner himself will be reading this to you. And it's it's only three hours and six minutes, which is kind of crazy. So it's condensed the story into a, a really fast-moving, fast-paced, almost kind of like a long film version of the book. And so um, this is this is a lot of fun. So this is the one I wanted to recommend that you could get free if you try audible.com you don't even have to stay with audible you actually get to keep the book chris which is so cool yeah yeah Yeah. there's no there's no commitment there's nothing to lose because if you decide audible's not for me after your trial after your 30-day trial then you get to keep that audiobook anyway so so you're going to get the return or anything else you want for free just for trying audible and the way you do that and go check out why Matthew loves this book is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up and choose your free audiobook and then see how you go. But you're going to love it. I mean, the fact that I've been an Audible listener for 14 years says something. They've kept me hooked in that long. I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books in my Audible library. And uh, they've, they've helped me keep sane as I'm commuting. I listen to them as I walk. I listen to them as I work. You know, if you have a job where you're sitting at a desk and you are able to put on some headphones or or you have a radio in your office and you can listen, it's a great thing for that as well. And uh, by supporting Audible, you'll be helping us bring literary tricks to you as well. So go check it out. I mean, who can turn down anything being read to them by William Shatner, Matthew? Chris, if you can, I want to meet you. <laughs> So go try it today again. That's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for supporting Literary Treks and the network. And of course, you for supporting Audible. Okay, Matthew, we're going to jump into the feature now. Joining us today is Margaret Clark, editor of the Star Trek novels that everyone's been reading. Uh, We did want to give you a note before we jump into the feature, though. We had a little bit of trouble with the connection, with the audio quality Margaret was calling in on the phone, and 
the connection was just a little bit rough. So the quality of the sound won't quite be the same as what you're accustomed to here on Literary Tricks. But the discussion is really great. Margaret shared a lot of really interesting stuff with you. So we do hope that you enjoy the interview. Well, Chris, we've got a great show uh, lined up for everybody this week. And I think uh, something that everybody's going to have a, a great time listening to. Um, we have the pleasure of having with us tonight Margaret Clark, um, who is an editor and writer. Um, most recently had worked for Pocket Books as the senior editor and has also worked for DC Comics, as well Marvel Comics in the past. And now she is working as an independent contractor um, and uh, has been uh, working with Star Trek Books still. And so we are very excited to have you here tonight, Margaret. It's great to be here. I thought it would be fun for the readers to discover who actually is behind the curtain. Definitely. Yes, yes. We'll pay no attention to that man behind the curtain because we have the woman behind the curtain here tonight. So um, first off, uh, one of the things that I always love to do um, when we talk to somebody in, involved in Star Trek literature is just to hear um, how it was that you became a fan of Star Trek, um, you know, your first introduction to this world. Uh, my AA meeting moment where I stand up so high. My name is Margaret. I'm a Star Trek fan. I first discovered Star Trek when I was young, and it was running repeats in New York. And I was very sick in the summertime, which, and my mother went, okay, you can watch television. This was the major thing. And she said, but you can't watch something you watched before. So I started changing channels, and I remember the first episode I ever saw in repeat. This is how my silly mind works, was Charlie X. Oh, oh wow. nice. So I, I started watching this, and I'm like, oh, well, this is kind of interesting. And then it became, you know, watch all the Star Trek episodes that I could watch. And I, as a, fortunately, as a fan growing up in New York, there was this one thing that's fairly well known in the fandom community, which was the committee convention. Right. The local New York news did a, you know, what every news camera team does. They go into the hotel. They follow the people around in the costumes because, man, that's what's going to make the, the producer of the, the Saturday show happy. Right. And I was <laughs> like, oh, my God, I have got to go to the one next year. Now, I wasn't growing up in New York City, but I was New York City savvy enough. And I kept going to some, and I'm like, my mother is not letting me go by myself. I am going to this convention next year. Sent away, got a one-day membership, which was a Saturday, because I knew that was the one day my mother would let me go into the city as long as I had somebody old enough with me. And I told her, Nick's going to go with me. And she's like, Nick? I go, he's got a license. I didn't mention Nick had a farm license, which you can get in New York State when you're 14. So my mother thought he was 18, and he was only two weeks older than me, and it was the most amazing thing to be in the middle of all of this. And I'm looking at stuff, I'm buying a Tribble from David Gerald, because he had a table in the dealer's room. (laughs) Oh, cool. I I kept going, oh, you know, because structure conventions are very gregarious. And even, you know, so it was sort of like, oh, hi. You know, and I said, well, how much is this one and how much is that one? I'm like, oh, that's great. And he goes, you know, 
and I'm holding the making of Star Trek, which I had bought in the convention, and his triple book, and he goes, would you like me to sign that? I'm like, well, who are you? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm David Joe. I'm like, oh, yes, please, 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 please. And that sort of was my introduction. I didn't, truthfully, I mean, we're talking about somebody who didn't spend lunch money for three weeks so she could buy something. Yeah. And I didn't know there were novels, and my cousin Joan was like, ooh, why don't you read these? And I, I'm reading the James Bush novels. And then I start reading more and more of them. And then college came. I really couldn't afford to do that anymore because you have a choice of gas for the car, books for school, or in Star Trek novels. And I was like, well, Yeah, right. Yeah. You borrow novels. Occasionally you'd find one in the library. And it became sort of like, okay, you know, I find a Star Trek book. I'd read it occasionally, but I sort of stopped. And I seem to have stopped during a particularly great era. And when I was hired by DC Comics, I was doing creator comics, which I had been doing at Marvel. And there was this big, massive meeting, and they said, well, we want somebody else to edit the Star Trek comics and the TNG comics. Is anybody here a Star Trek fan? And your hand went up. You've got all the editors and assistant editors sitting at a conference table, I raised my hand and went, yeah, I kind of sort of know some stuff. Great, they're yours. Take them. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's good, Margaret. I have to say your story of how you became a Star Trek fan is a lot cooler than mine. I didn't get to go and actually meet David Gerald or anything like that. Well, I not only got to meet him, I got to insult him. Who are you? <laughs> you know, so it was like, okay. But, but you, you know, the... You get the Star Trek comics and you're looking at this going, okay, well, the first thing I should do is find out who I'm dealing with over in that, that point with Paramount. And I look at the name and I go, oh, my God, it's Paula Block. She was on the committee. She worked on the Star Trek convention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, like, do some envelope stuffing for the committee people. So Paula and I had sort of a day passing acquaintance, and she's like, I don't remember you. I go, I stuffed envelopes in Deborah's apartment for three weekends in a row. She, oh, okay. So, I mean, Paula and I <laughs> both have our, our fan crits way back. We both had, and this is the person that I dealt with at Paramount and CBS Consumer Products, someone who had a love for Star Trek who understood the show and was interested in sharing that love with other fans. So I never had a problem with Paramount or CBS. And not that they roll over and let me do anything I wanted to do. I mean, there would be occasions where, you know, I'd come up with something and i go, yeah, um, let me call Paula before we actually hire authors to see if she'll let us do this. And they'd be, get me a memo. I'll go pass it up the food chain and I'll get back to you. I'm like, okay. And then maybe be some adjustments, but by and large, I mean, they were one of the most, because the group that I was with did media tie-ins and you deal with a lot of different people and 
out of all of them, Paramount and CBS Consumer Products were the ones most willing to work with you. I mean, they were, hmm. and they knew Star Trek. Right. They, you know, and if they didn't, they'd check or they'd find out. Or, and so when I was there, Star Trek was in production, they called down to the production office and talked to Mike or to Doug or to anyone else that was there and go, okay, Pocketbooks wants to do this strange thing. And, and, you know, I can only hear Michael Kuda saying, what does Margaret want to do now? <laughs> <laughs> because when I was hired at Pocket Books, I was first hired just, I had been downsized out of D.C. And mm-hmm. I was hired mm-hmm. to pull photographs because they were going to reprint the chronology in the encyclopedia in color, and mm-hmm. they wanted to pull photographs. And I knew Star Trek, so I started pulling stuff. So you were doing that. You were pulling the photos for that for the big encyclopedia. This is where we get into Star Trek Obscure. Yes. Okay. Because of the old SAG agreement, Screen Actors Guild, actors on the original Star Trek did not sign a merchandising clause. Mm. So to use their images, you either A, they had to have signed off on a merchandising clause, or P, someone had to get in contact with the actor or if they still had one, their agent, and get them to agree to let you use their image. Or you could use the photo you would use before. So if you look at the old, if anyone has the old black and white encyclopedia, you'll see a lot of the images were exactly the same. And some of that was the, the Screen Actors still didn't have contact information, or the actor hadn't signed their agreement, or their estate said no. Uh, that was part of the assistant editor stuff that I would do would be, okay, Screen Actors Guild will give you five names. You know, you call guests for this many, you maybe get three, and then you contact the actor and go explain to you who you were, what you wanted them for. You do a lot of tap dancing. Some people hang up on you right away, and other people, oh, that'd be nice. Would I get any money? Oh, that's a paramount question. I'm just asking to use your image. And, you know, so I did that, and then it'd be like, you know, I started working with other things. I was hired because I had four-color experience coming from comic books. Yeah. To create your own comic books, you did a lot more four-color separation. Right. Book editors don't really do a lot of four-color separation. So the idea was that hire someone who knew how to do this and could do it cheaply. <laughs> to me, the unit cost of a book drives up the price of the actual book. How can I save money if I do this, this, and this? Could we then get the unit cost down 40 cents? So this was part of what I was doing. I mean, when illustrated books or if it's got pictures in it, stop selling. It was sort of like, ah, because that was part of my joy was like dealing with that photography and pulling things like that. Mm. But as the sales numbers kept going softer and softer and softer, you know, we just had to stop. Yeah, I mean, it was heartbreaking. 
Yeah, which is interesting since we've kind of uh, they've there's been a little resurgence in that um, with uh, the a smaller press did Federation first hundred and fifty years. Well, it's Amazon. Um, it's yeah, forty-seven. Yeah, yeah. It was done by Amazon yep. in-house press, and then yeah. Kieran Mayer did the craft books, the Klingon. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know how Becker and Mayer is making that work. I know most of their books are printed overseas, so it's cheaper. But then you have to build in eight months into the production because you actually do put them on a slow boat from China. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea how they're making that work. God bless them. The books that I worked on, with one exception, were all printed in the United States or Canada. Mm. All the paper was missing. You could have a little made in North America symbol. Because the logistics of getting books from China, boy, I did that... Uh, twice for Star Trek, and three times for another bo- other books. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> inevitably, since the packages are usually not picking the phone up, somebody in a warehouse in Wisconsin calls you because it's a Simon & Schuster warehouse, and your neighbor's in the directory and goes, you know, the pallet broke. Who is it? Oh, gosh. But Joe. Joe who? I don't know, if you like going, you want to call production? Yeah, but they weren't answering their phone, and you did. <laughs> okay, give me your number, and I'll, I'll ask someone down in production to call you because the pallet broke. I know how you feel. I mean, I, I worked in magazines for a long time, and it was back in the day before digital stuff as well. We were doing, like you, doing four-color. We were doing... Uh, you know, film, processing film, doing match prints, ship everything off to the printer. And we were in Alabama. Our printer was in Minnesota. We had to box, you know, every page of the magazine up and ship it off to Minnesota. And if anything went wrong in the process with those boxes getting there, what happened? We get, you know, the same kind of calls. Well, it's interesting. When I was working on the encyclopedia, we lost three letters. That was when I stopped sending originals out to anybody. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful to try to explain to Federal Express what it is that you're sending to somebody. There are your box broken open on the runway. What, what do you mean by box broke open? What is plane run over? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious because you've talked a lot about going from comics, you know, into books here and in the process and pulling the photos. And what's different to you about in terms of the editing side when I know you did Ill Wind. You did Diane Duane's Ill Wind, which actually Matthew and I uh, talked about here on the show a while back, uh, the comic series. But then, so that's writing for comics, editing that, and coordinating that. And then these days you're doing these novels, such as The Fall that just came out. I mean, what, what's, what is different about that for you in terms of the job of editing between comics and books? I know I've beaten this line into my author's head so many times, but it always starts with the first thing tell me a good story. And then tell me a good Star Trek story. That's where, it, with, even with comics, it starts with the writing. If it's mm-hmm. not on the page, unless you have some virtuoso like Frank Miller or David Mazzucchelli. Yeah. It's got to be on the page. I mean, with comics, I was always visually driven. It was always like, what does it look like? How does it move? How does it flow? What would be a better way to cut or move this? 
So when I moved into doing books for Pocket, it was always visual. What's a better looking shot? Is there a more interesting way to show this? Could the layout for this page be done better? So comic books are layouts, and four-color illustrated books are layouts. When we, Michael, Denise, and Doug and I started working on the encyclopedia, and I showed them some design stuff, and I went, yeah, um, I've got something else that I wanted to do. And that's when we started breaking the fourth wall and changing the illustrations so the text would wrap around them. I'm sure the designer, even now, is still got a little voodoo doll where she's sticking pins in me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because it was sort of like, well, this is really boring. And Star Trek isn't boring. Let's have some fun with this. I mean, Deep Space Nine spread was everybody's favorite because you have that station and we wrap type around it. And I was like, this is Star Trek. Let's have fun with it. It doesn't have to be bland and boring. Let's, you know, with the encyclopedia, since every letter started on the new page, you know, if I had ooh, three quarters of a blank page, I'd be rerunning and re-ragging type or making images bigger or smaller. And that's the kind of thing that you do in comic books because you'll go, you know, if you're working really close with an with a a penciler or an artist, you could go, well, could this panel be bigger and could we take like three smaller ones or could we make this one page mm-hmm. and a little flash and do three is that you you have a tendency to see things more you see things visually. And that was something right. that I was, I was always driven by things visually. I, what does something look like? It sort of like it's locked into my baby little brain. Mm. For you, um you know, making the the jump from the comic industry and then into the book industry, and then you, you know, you had the transition from working on staff at Pocket um, and now working as the freelance editor. And so, uh, what changed for you in in what you're doing for for Pocket from being on staff to doing the independent contracting work that you're doing now? The independent stuff. It's more of a partnership because I work with Ed Schlesinger at Simon & Schuster. We usually do two meetings a year, and then we do countless emails and phone conversations about things. So it's, it's more of a partnership, and I don't have to sit in silly meetings and write endless memos. So it's a little bit better for me. <laughs> but, <laughs> Definitely. You know, I, I don't have... The level of control that the little maniac in me wanted. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, there's a lot of, you know, comes in, comes out. You know, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. Yeah, that, that level of control is a thing, I think, because I, I have, I do work for clients where I used to work for the company and now I, I have a contractor relationship with them and it's the same thing right where like you want to have that control and, and in your case it's probably the same because you were on staff at pocket and you you i suspect had more input than maybe you do now and that's really hard to get your hard to come to terms with sometimes i think in the way you work in your workflow yeah yes and no i mean but you know and it's really good i mean you know to me you know it's kind of interesting i'm mostly the word person now you know, so it's like all of the other stuff poor Ed has to do. You know, it's like, 
chasing after the legal department for contracts and paperwork and the stuff that used to drive me insane. He gets to do it. <laughs> That's good. <Yeah. laughs> So uh, what what role um, then, you know, does an editor play in, in the books that we end up seeing on the shelves or, you know, when we're perusing digitally in our, you know, iBook store? On Star Trek, the editor having been in both situations, with Star Trek not being in production, and I'm talking the Prime Universe, the Gene Roddenberry Universe, you basically are the keeper of the flame. You're the person who has to look at a Star Trek story and go, is this true to Jing Ranberry's Star Trek? Is it a good story? And the other thing that a writer has to do is, it's not quite as easy as it seems to write. How hard could it be to write a Star Trek story? Yeah, some of these guys, after I've gone through and gone, yeah, no, um, you can't do that because in this episode or that episode, there's a lot of Star Trek knowledge that you have to have in your brain, but you don't want it all braided. You don't want the living caption book where you right. have that character standing there. You want it to be sort of seamless. Also, I try to make sure that the books are true to their series, that if you're right. reading a Key West book, it feels like, okay, Bob Chessman would have bought this story. He couldn't afford it. the effects, but... Bob Justman would have gone into Gene and went, you really should read this, this is good. I mean, that's sort of always in the back of my brain is, would Bob Justman buy this story? After he started adding stuff up and can't cross out all the effects that I can do because I have an unlimited budget and I can hire as many actors as I want. Um, you know, and then you look at the other books and that's, that's really the, is it a good, is it a good story? Is it a good Voyager story? Is it a good Deep Space Nine story? Is it a good TNG mm. story? Now, with one of the things that Marco and I did when we were both on staff and we heard about the J.J. movie, is we said, you know what? 2009, in the fall and the winter, when that movie comes out, no 23rd century books. You want to see Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you got to go pay for it. We're mm -hmm. going to do just 22nd century and 24th. And that's when we pulled that image out of the Columbia, pointed to Dave and go, hey, why don't you do three books? Uh, because we wanted something that would be a big event for the book and that would also change the tone of the 24th century books going forward because Paramount saying, okay, we're going to reboot the original series said to us, we're the only game in town for the 24th century. So let's do something. Right. That's something that when I was on staff, I would maybe once a year go out to the studio and just sort of like schmooze. And as a fan, you're walking down and you know TNG is being shot on the left side of the road. And you know Deep Space Nine is being shot on the right side of the road. And you know that's never going to happen that either the train shall meet. And as a fan, you're like, you know, that really kind of sucks. As an editor, you get to <laughs> right. I can do this. It doesn't matter to me that I can't afford Patrick Stewart. You just put a couple lines in, and wow, I can afford Patrick Stewart. Can't afford to blow up uh, 
kill three billion people? Yeah, I can. Hire Jake Mack. Move on. Move on. Right. The, right. the magic of casting <laughs> in books, right? You know, it, 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 and the 24th century should be interconnected, and that's one of the things I now tell authors. Great. Um, yeah, 24th century. It's all in, interconnected. But and I've heard all of my authors say, your story has to stand alone. We have to be able to read your story and get a whole story here. So the storytelling in the books is a lot more like contemporary television, or as I like to think of it in my little grandiose dreams as I stand on top of my chair screaming, it's an HBO series. Oh, wait, excuse me. It's a Showtime series. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I'm trying to keep it true. I mean, Deep Space Nine was sort of going in that direction. So the 24th century to me is all... It's interconnected. They're near each other. They're involved in each other. And that was the idea behind Destiny was to do what you would have wanted to do if you had that power. You're walking down the Paramount lot going, how hard would this be? You know, they're all kind of wearing the same costumes. Holy, So it's one of the fun things that I get to do is like think, well, that would be fun, but it can't be just done because I want to. It's got to be a good story. There's got to be a reason for it. There's got to be a drive behind it. There's got to, you know, and it, you know, luckily I have really, really, really good Star Trek writers. Well, actually good writers who know Star Trek. Because the amount of obscura to do Star Trek is kind of insane. And between the television shows and the books, there's a lot of stuff floating out there. Right. You know, I whenever somebody gets like that kind of like craziness, I just say Heisenberg compensator and they go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. So so Star Wars um, and, and their literature has had um, Leland Chi who is the, the, called their holocron keeper and he's the person who tries to keep everything straight in that universe um and that, and that's his job um and so with with star trek and the novels how has that worked of of doing the best it's possible of trying to keep everything together well and that actually ties into to a thought i had as you were talking margaret same thing because this is something that that you have to do but as someone who you're t- you talked at the beginning about meeting david gerald and like me, you know, you started out with the original series and now there's so much stuff going on. The writers do so much stuff that they would have never been allowed to do on screen. So I think the question here that Matthew has of who keeps that straight and how does it all work, but also uh, related to that for me, I'm curious too, how you feel like, is there something tugging in inside you too, as you do try to keep it straight where you feel like you can't do that because of this episode and this episode and this episode and how hard is it for you to also um, relax your yourself to say, okay, it's okay if we do this, even though maybe my first reaction is that it kind of violates canon per se. Most of the guy, most of the writers don't do that unless they already have justification. I mean, mm-hmm. the most important thing is what's on screen. That's holy Brit. The book stuff. Yes. 
you want to be that crazy and tie in book thing, great. But to me, I want to make sure that somebody who's walking by in a supermarket in Kankakee, Illinois, and sees a TNG book cover and goes, oh, well, that's interesting, and picks the book up, don't feel like they've missed anything because they haven't read the three other books with it. All of the writers know their Star Trek stuff. And if they don't, usually I catch it or CBS catches it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff and bringing new people, new writers in, which is always fun. I always tell them there's a bright line and you don't need to know anything past that because we basically kicked the table over and shot everybody in the room. So before the bright line was destiny, and now the bright line will be the fall because that changed so many things in the 24th century. With the TOS books, because that license has been running since time immemorial, those books are not connected. If a writer wants to do that, great. I better not feel like I have to buy a 30-year-old book that you couldn't find on a bet. So we're going to like, great, great, you want to do that, not a problem. Make sure it syncs up. You know, I'll accommodate that in any way possible, but there have been so many TOS books. I mean, the 24th century, it's like, keep it in your head, keep, it, keep what you can keep there. If I'm not sure, it's like, okay, the writer's, email and work with each other. I mean, the 24th century really is like a writer's room on a, a very complex television show where why they can't wander down the hallway in the Hart building and talk to Ron about Klingons. They can email each other back and forth and check and go, is this okay? What about that? So it's like there has to be a sort of leave your ego at the door let's work together sort of thing with the 24th century books. And as you've seen with The Fall, that was a five-book 24th century series. And out of five books, four of them made the New York Times bestseller list in a row. Right. That hasn't been done. Ed is looking, but to my knowledge, that has not ever happened. Right. Mm. And it's because you have really... You had David... George set it up, and then you had these guys, just and and girl, work together, work cooperatively, and great writers telling it. It's a great Star Trek story. Definitely. You know, so the idea is to change the dynamics. I love Gene Roddenberry. And as a college student, he would give lectures on the Eastern Seaboard, and my girlfriend and I would drive. And I figure out a way to could it be like you could only get tickets if you were a student on this particular college. I always find somebody to buy tickets for me so I could sit and listen. <laughs> and he sort of gave the same speech year after year, but it was still like Gene Ronberry. <laughs> Kids within driving distance, we have to go see But he didn't think there should be conflict on the Enterprise or within the Federation. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I need conflict. So the idea of young Starfleet officers who come up during the Dominion War and during the Borg invasion where they got fast promoted, their vision of Starfleet is different from people like Picard and Riker and Dax and Cisco, And it creates a sort of tension in Starfleet. Whoa, whoops, sorry. 
you know, the Federation is still root beer. Yes, for your obscure Deep Space Nine reference. Yes, you see how much silly shit's floating <laughs> between my ears? It's still root, root, root beer, but, you know, it's not quite, maybe, you know. Yeah, it's like root beer with, with a little bit of whiskey thrown in now. <laughs> you know, so it's sort of like, you know, also the, the you know, using the aliens that had been there forever and making them the Typhon Pact. It gives the writers all these great moving pieces mm. so they can have a story, that they can tell a story. And, and to me, it's always tell me a good story. Yeah. With Star Trek story. I, you know, and I, I must have said it enough because I've heard oh, at least six or seven of my writers say the exact same thing in interviews. Yes, and definitely. That's the most important thing. I mean, you know, I don't need to know how to dance phaser works. Point it and shoot it. I'm Gene Roddenberry that way. I don't need all that techno babble. You want to do techno babble? Great. You know I'm going to vet you. What do you mean? I said, I'm going to send it to somebody and going to ask them to look at it. It's like when I was working with Kirsten and she was like, I said, well, why don't we do talk about doing a source of separation on Voyage? And she goes, well, can we do that? I went, give me 48 hours. <laughs> I emailed Mike Akuda and Doug Drexler, and they said, yes, you could do a source of separation. And when CBS got the outline, and they went, well, we don't think that can happen. I went, okay, go ahead, forward the email from Mike Akuda and Doug Drexler. I worked with those two guys like forever, you know. Right. So I have, you know. I wonder what the alert color would be. So when the Voyager lands, it's a blue alert. Would it be like a purple alert? For saucer <laughs> section, what would you go with there? <laughs> it, because Doug was at, Doug had actually left the art department, and he was working at one of the effects houses, and they were planning on doing a scene where Voyager would do a saucer separation. So they kind oh, of really? done a wireframe for it at one point, and then the scene just never made it to final. So I oh. knew it had been there. So it's like it's that kind of really obscure knowledge floating around in my brain that you can go, ooh, ooh, here's a great bit that Voyager writers didn't get to. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Well, that brings me to a question of, of, you know, what then, you know, just drives those decisions as to what series gets published each year and how many, so, you know, how many TOS novels do you see? How many DS9, you know, novels do you see? Um, and, and do you end up having like a long-term story plan for the next few years or, or do you just kind of do one year at a time? Uh, what happened is, is when they brought me in as an independent character after Star Trek had been passed around for a while, uh, the old licensing deal with um, CBS Paramount was about to end. And all of the writers got told, please write me something that could either be a series finale or a season finale. So Voyager, Deep Space Nine, and Dave's Cold Equation books, those three books were done for the TNG anniversary. And then it was, I got to break Dave's little heart and go, oh, there we go, the license. So because there was this huge gap between whether or not they were going to do the book, or not do the books, it becomes, let's start reaching out to people. And 2013 was sort of, you know, the 2012 year was, oh, my God, let's just buy books as fast as I can so I can publish them on time. 
The Star Trek books are unusual with the fact that there is a new mass market book every month. So you need to have 12 Star Trek books that publish and have to ship on time. And in the time between when I left staff and when I came in as an independent contractor, then you move the dates back. Mass market books now have to go even sooner to the printer, which means you have to turn an outline in even sooner and turn in the manuscript even sooner. So that kind of was a mess. Now, 2013, we, we all knew there was going to be a major tentpole move. So when um, Marco and I decided not to publish any TOS books for the 2009 Trek movie, uh, the book account had a stick. They had a cow. Oh my God, we don't have anything. So I assumed with uh, Star Trek Into Darkness that there'd be this huge publicity campaign and lots and lots and lots of commercials. And there would definitely be something leading up to the Super Bowl. I mean, I figured it had to be as big as Iron Man. So I figured let's do six TOS books in a row, make the accounts happy. Those are, you know, and I said to Ed, like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I said, well, how? He goes, I want something big then for the end of the year because, you know, these TOS books are going to sell really well and we want to sort of balance it out. He goes, we need something really big. And I'm sitting there going, okay. And as you've been told, for some reason, the Archduke Ferdinand popped into my head because I thought that was the silliest thing to start a world war over. And it'd be interesting to see <laughs> not, right. not start a war, but change the dynamics of what's going on. So I'm like, how about this? And I sort of like gave it three beats. And he goes, well, how many books would it be? And I go, well, you know, we have to do Deep Space Nine for the anniversary. That's one. And, and, and then we should do something with the Enterprise, the Titan, um, maybe the Enterprise again. Uh, and then we need a conclusion. He goes, what about Voyager? I go, Voyager's three years behind this. We can't use her. He goes, so Six books going no, five. Five is more than enough. So that sort of ended out that year, and then it was sort of like, well, what can I put in? Well, I have an enterprise book. I have Dayton's spectacular chart from hell. Every time I read the manuscript, I would be like, I, I'd email and go, damn, boy, is your wife even talking to you? Were you all going around mumbling like in a beautiful mind? <laughs> right. I mean, I, I had a vision of his office covered with paper, like in a beautiful mind. He goes, it wasn't yeah. quite that bad. Okay. So, you know, that was sort of my, I was being a cheap, sleazy marketing um, person and trying to coattail on the movie publicity, which didn't do kiss for the books. <laughs> There wasn't that much publicity for Into Darkness. I mean, if you look at the Iron Man 3 publicity, which is sort of the same tentpole kind of movie, there was nothing in comparison. Mm. And every time a TOS book came out, someone bitched, I had Ed emailing me going, I go, well, there's an Enterprise book coming out. Come down. He goes, yeah, but the next book after that statement. I go, yeah, it's a TOS book, but it's really a Star Trek old book, you know, because... Well, don't you think, and for those people who wanted that, don't don't you think that having 
book set, you know, TOS or 24th century prime timeline or enterprise is important even in the face of Into Darkness because there are so many fans, so many Star Trek fans who really didn't care about Into Darkness because they don't care about this rebooted timeline. And I think having these books is really important for the overall health of the franchise, even if it doesn't, you know, there is no back and forth between the books and the the JJ movies. Uh, book buyers don't know the difference between the Prime Universe and the JJ Universe. But the Star Trek fan book buyers. Yeah, but the only reason you see a book on a shelf is because some buyer somewhere bought the book. And that's mm. part of the thing that's always sort of floating around in the back of my head is these books are not bought by Star Trek fans. They're the people who decide what goes on your bookshelf is somebody in an office who maybe has a vague idea of what this stuff is. Okay, so you're talking about the the buyer being the, the bookstore buying the books to put on the shelf right. as opposed to the, the bookstore buyer, the readers themselves, the warehouse okay. manager, yeah. but the actual end buyer, the, the reader, the fan. Yeah. They, they know the difference, but yeah. unless I get it in a store, it's kind of sort of hard after that. I mean, mm. I can imagine I'm having, right. I'm having my annual meeting. My, I'm having one of my annual lunch meeting with Ed this week. And I can imagine they're all screaming, we want another the phone. Like, no, 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 you don't go to that well that many times. That was special and unique. Yeah. The 24th century, the, the next year after the war, uh, everyone's being told if we're going back to an age of exploration. Right. All doing stories about exploring, looking for things. They're, you know, the 24th century books will continue to have underlying type continuity, but there won't be a big story. I mean, I can actually tell right. you what the entire 2014 schedule is, and they're not clumped up that much. They're more spread out. Um, well, except for Seekers. Seekers Book 1 and Seekers Book 2 are back-to-back, -back because if I didn't have the second Seekers book come out the next month after Dave's, People would be writing and trying to murder him at Shirley's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there, there would be a small, there would be a problem. There would be a big problem. So that was, sometimes I build the year around an event. Is there a movie? Or sometimes it's like, okay, let's put Seekers out so you can take it to Shirley's. And let's hope Kevin and Dayton, don't go to show leave because there will be people wandering around going, you must have it on you. Come, come, give it to me, give it to me. You got to have the book. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Because it ends <laughs> and you're like, oh my God. So that was sort that's of, awesome. that was what, that's what set the 2014 schedule was. You know, I did put Kirsten's Voyager book in February. So hopefully some people will think, oh, oh, look, it's 24th century. And then it's, it is a very it's a much bigger mix in 2014. I mean, yeah, which I think is going to be really good. Um, I mean, and, I also uh, noticed nobody noticed complained about there being five 24th century books in a row. You know, I think I think that might be because it's the only place that we get that sense of the prime universe, um, that continuing universe that so many fans yeah, would, would so love too. to see, and you know, at the end of the TNG films, uh, you know, the, the books are all we have. And so, um, it, it's 
for those people that are real Star Trek fans um, and, and love the story, we like to see it continue in the books. And, and that's the only place we can get it. So, man, when those came out every month for five months, I was loving it. Because for me, as just being a huge fan, I love seeing these stories continue. Um, and that kind of brings me to uh, just my next question, which is, um, you know, with the end of the fall... What will be the future specifically, and this is just for, I, I know a lot of friends and, and fans, is um, for the series of, of, of Deep Space Nine. Because Deep Space Nine had that whole great resurgence, I think, of the books in general um, with its huge relaunch. And then it had to play catch up to Destiny. And so um, we lost some like story points. Um, so just kind of wondering what the future specifically for Deep Space Nine will be. Again, marketing. It's been shown that books that are set like during the third year of TNG don't sell. So since everybody right. knows where the Deep Space Nine people are going, that story will be continued to go forward. But that doesn't mean there wouldn't be a story that tells us why Kira left Starfleet and became a Vedic why, what took Esri Dax off the station. But it would not be the only story. There's going to be, I mean, and this this, this is another thing I, I tell writers, it's got to be like vaudeville. Leave them wanting more. Don't tell them everything. Have them go, wait a minute, Kiroshvedic? What the hell did that happen? <laughs> right. And that was before I was off staff. That was the thing I suggested to David George was, I think she should be a Vedic. Why? I went, don't tell him. Just make her a Vedic. We'll figure that out later. I mean, that was a four and a half year gap in the Deep Space Nine books. So Deep Space Nine will be going forward. Uh, Una McCormick actually has an approved story from CBS that is set on the new station. Oh, excellent. Great. I love Una. I love Una, too. A goyle, no. It's not a lot of us goyles working on Star Trek. I mean, she's she's a really good story. She, she her first outline, she came to me and she got my spear carrier speech. And the second one was like, holy shit, this is great. Um, and I'm like, let's just you know, I you saw how much leaked on the fall. Almost nothing, except for cover copy, which I was sort of like, guys, please show me the cover copy before it goes anywhere because. I wouldn't take all those spoilers out. I can write daily copy. But uh, yes. Luna's book is at the very end of the 2004 publishing schedule. Okay. Because she had a baby. Um, so I know, it, you know, so it was sort of like, let's give her the time to do this. You know, I have, do you, would you like to hear the publishing schedule for 2004? That, that would be awesome. Absolutely. Well, you already know that Kurtzman's Voyager book will be out in February. Yes, very excited about that. Greg Cox has a TOS book. Uh, Christopher Bennett has an Enterprise book. Another Jeff Marriott TOS book. And David George's One Constant Star. Then Jeff Lang's TNG sequel to... Uh, Cold Equations, which is like fantastic. And we have David Max Seekers number one, Warden Gilmore Seekers number two. I realize all this stuff is out now. Voyager's second 
uh, Kirsten Seconds Voyager book, which is Acts of Contrition. And since this is a sort of three-book story thing, I'm scheduling these closer together. So in the Excellent. In October will be Acts of Contrition. Hi, David. David Max Section 31 Disavowal will be in November. Greg Cox is TNG TOS Saudis Will Rise, and this is actually a movie error book. Oh, and wow. We, yes. That's a TOS movie error book. Um, I don't remember if it's, it's Dr. Denton's or the nice one. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. You know what I mean by Dr. Denton's? And Una McCormick's is a Deep Space Nine book with the awesome. with the current temporary CMO of Deep Space Nine and another Doctor we've seen before. Excellent! That's going to be fun. That see that, that that's a really exciting year for Star Trek books. So I hope the other Doctor that we've seen before is the EMH Mark II played by Andy Dick from Voyager. I don't even think Jeff got him into Life Fantastic, which is he's. He has almost every holographic character he could get in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I handed him a list, and he, he watched the episode, and he went, eh, I don't know. I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> I think it's just because it was Andy Dick. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I like the scene, not to leak anything here, but I like the scene where they all go over to the dinner party at the, the village from Shadowplay on Deep Space Nine, where everyone at the dinner party happens to be a hologram, but the host doesn't know. Yeah. Well, Jeff's uh, <laughs> uh, book is, is fantastic because it is it's a sequel to Cold Equations because it's the only book that data will be in for the next 19 months. I'm looking at the 2015 schedule, and he's not in any of those books either. Oh, wow. Data to me is like saffron. He should be used very sparingly. I told Jeff, you have the only data story this year. He's like, you're kidding me. I said, nope, no one else is. I said, you have to do a hell of a book to get. I said, that's not, that's not where Jader is anymore. Jader is right. not a Starfleet person. I mean, this is a, it, I love it. It's a sequel to Immortal Coil. It's also a sequel to Cold Equations. And it's, you know, it's a, a TNG book. It's Geordi, it's Data, it's evil holograms, it's good holograms. It's unexpected people suddenly, you know, I mean, it's it's a great read. It really is. But That's awesome. Because it's also in the 24th century, you know, David George took a look at the Deep Space Nine part, so everything syncs up with a new part of the station. I said, you know, everyone gets told, yes, 24th century is sort of continuity heavy, so everyone helps everyone right. else along. With um, I noticed that um, and and it's been kind of announced that you know e novellas are just kind of making this comeback. Um, and we had last year, um, James Swallow's fantastic ebook um that I loved that Picard story with the Nexus was just fantastic. And this year I noticed that they're going to be a you know a few more um ebooks coming out. So I'm just kind of wondering uh, in general how are they fitting into kind of the overall st- strategy. Um, with uh, the you know the mainline novels, I, I treat the ebooks as sort of like the story between the page. It's like if you're reading a book and you turn the page, but some of them are standalones. Um, I have a, a, a Christopher Bennett with a Department of Temporal Investigation. Oh, um, excellent! 
John Jackson Miller's, which you know is the, you know, the, the itchy Admiral Riker story. Yes. I also have something called uh, Q are cordially uninvited, huh. which is a TNG story telling the story of Captain Picard and Dr. Beverly Crusher's wedding. Oh, title, wow. The title alone tells you the problem with that. <laughs> that sounds great. Interesting. You are cordially uninvited, and then there is a Star Trek Deep Space Nine that's called Lust, Platinum, Lost, and Found. This is a quark story where he's trying desperately because there's so many more distractions on this new station. He's not the only game in town, and he's trying to buy the latest version of Vulcan Love Slaves. <laughs> that awesome. is just awesome. <laughs> I love that. So, I mean, a lot of, I use these as like, you know, between the page stories or just something that you couldn't do as a whole book, but it'd be mm. nice to tell the story. I actually have my Dayton file, which basically he keeps going, no, I said, no, really, they're, they're sitting in my ebook thing. And, you know, you actually get it a little bit further along. Let, let's talk about it. He's yeah. like, okay, 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 okay. So he's got like two different ebook ideas. And I'm like, oh, okay, um, um, you know, pitch them. I said, you've got folders, you know, I keep, I have a Macintosh, so I have little folders and folders, so there's an ebook folder, and then there's everybody's little things where you're just like, okay, where are you? And, you know, John Jackson Miller, who writes for Star Wars, you know, I'm like, yes. really? What, yes. you, want do, you want to do the 24th century? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. Um, all right, let me send you this, <laughs> and I'm going to send you these two books from the fall, but if it leaks, I know where you live, and I know it's a, it's a Expensive plane tickets, but I will come and kill you. <laughs> he wrote a really great story, and he's like, that was fun. I really enjoyed that. And then as the fall book started hitting the Times list, he's like, he goes, wow, it was like two in a row. I go, yeah, I have my fingers crossed for the next two. He's like, I'd like to do another one. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, That's great. So he's actually going to do a full novel for 2004. Oh, Fantastic. I do love cool. John Jackson Miller. So I can actually say that because I have a signed contract. We've got it here first, that's folks. Right. We've got it here that's first. Right. It is signed. He is. I'm sorry, John. Really, I am. He's doing an Aventine book. Oh, my gosh. You just made my night. I love Esri Dax. Yeah, and... Matthew is very happy to hear that. Woo. Can I ask you a question, Margaret? This, when you were talking about the Q are cordially uninvited, this just spurred this in my mind. It's something we talk about here on the show sometimes. We really miss, especially I really miss Star Trek audiobooks. And, you know, John Delancey narrated so many of those. And I know it's, I know the complications and, you know, everyone involved in it. Has there been any discussion internally about any possibility of bringing some of these books back in the audio format? They are actively talking about bringing, I know they're taking some of the old tape ones and making them digital. And I know they are actually, they're talking about it. That's part of my lunch for Ed. I mean, I, (laughs) 
I made myself persona non grata with the audiobook division when, um, because I had worked on all these illustrated books, which meant I worked with Rick Berman's office, and I worked with Ira Bear's office, and I worked with Jerry Taylor's office. I kind of got the high profile books, and Andrew Robinson was like, well, you know, maybe I'd like to do a book, I'm not really sure. So it was sort of like, you know, could he come in and his son was living in Jersey and said, could he come in and visit you? I'm like, sure, fine, not a problem. I'm sure he was less than impressed with our offices. Some people, how people think our offices look like publishers' offices do, like yeah. floor and order. <laughs> I yeah, little right. skanky things with tons of paper everywhere where, you know, <laughs> if you could put another three bookshelves in your office, you would. But, you know, then you wouldn't be able to actually get to your desk. So, you know, I was like, he wrote the book. He did the whole thing by himself. You know, he took some editorial direction. And from the day I bought that book, I was on the audio people. He has to mm. do this. He has to do this. It actually got to the point where they went to the publisher and went, make her stop. Oh, wow, really? So mm -hmm. I kind of sort of stopped asking about audio books. Huh. So I was like, that would have been great. And he was like, I would like to do that. I go, yeah, I almost got myself fired over that, Andy. I'm sorry. But I know they're talking about it. I know um, I know they're talking internally. I know they're talking to outside providers. I That's part of the fun I'm not a part of anymore. I mean, I was asked for a suggestion on what old book I, they thought could, I could record. And I went, really? You need to ask it? Are you going to say a stitch in time? I go, yeah, I'm going to say a stitch in time. But I, <laughs> I realize it's probably out of yeah. date. I think, uh, I'm like, truthfully, if you want something short, uh, I'm like, now you really can't do Seekers 1 because people would want to kill you when you got to the end of the audio book. I mean, because it literally ends where you're like, oh, my God. Thank God I scheduled the next book after that. So we were, like, looking at stuff. I mean, I gave it a couple of other suggestions, but it's one of those things that it's kind of, you know, I don't know. You throw it in the hopper, you hope something happens. I mean, to me, uh, what has been great, because Star Trek fans are what I call first users, is the ebook numbers on Star Trek are insane. They yeah. are so good. That's I how mean, I get mine. Yeah, yeah, m me as well. It, it's almost impossible to find mass market books in Barnes and Noble. Borders has disappeared. Target doesn't take it. Walmart and I live in Tokyo, so I'm certainly not going to find any Star Trek paperback books on the shelf around here. I used to know three stores in Tokyo where you could get American books, but I'm sure they're all gone. I, I, yeah, they're I, still around, but it's but Star Trek books. You're only going to find a very very limited number of them. Yeah. Believe it or not, that's what you're going to find in the Queen's Barnes & Noble. Um, so, the, 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 which is great because Star Trek fan, it, it's a great way to read everything. It's a great way to do stuff. So, mm -hmm. it's, mass markets are a problem. And why I was tap dancing about buyers, I'm always thinking I have to make sure these books sell because that's how I keep all of these franchises alive. I mean, there is no Voyager stuff coming out from anybody except Simon and Schuster. Yeah, they're doing Enterprise DVDs, and you, you do actually see more Enterprise merch. 
but there's no Deep Space Nine unless you go to Simon and Schuster. I mean, it's you know, it's one of those things. It's like I was a fan during the interregnum or the drought years for the original series. You know, I want to make sure that books sell and tell good stories and have good writers. So Simon and Schuster doesn't go to add into me. You know, twelve is excessive. We think four would be enough. I mean, that's always, always in the back of my mind. Is try to schedule the books so they get maximum exposure, so they can mm. sell. Right. You know, I, right. I, I mean, you know, the numbers, considering in the United States, the, the bookstore chain that bought the most Star Trek books was Borders. And now they're gone. Yeah, they're gone. So now you're like, okay, what do I have? I have Barnes and Noble. I have um, two massive um, warehouse retailers who then put them out to other places like drugstores and supermarkets and independents and Amazon. Not as many places to buy a bookstore. It's like when I was a reader going, okay, if I don't eat lunch, Every other day, when I go to the mall in two weeks, I can go into B. Dalton and get a Star Trek yeah. book. Yep. Yeah. There is no casual wander in someplace and find a book. I mean, so it's always in the back of my head. It's always, mm. I'm always thinking we have to make sure these, these books sell. Mm. I want to keep the writers I have who are great, who get writing Star Trek who write well, I mean, these people could all write and have, do write for other things. I'm fortunate enough that they write for me and for Star Trek. I'm very fortunate. Mm. I mean, you look at what, you know, as much as it was teaching cats to dance, the fall is amazingly intricate. It's a lot of moving pieces. And if I didn't have those five really good writers, it would not have worked. Definitely, definitely. I mean, and then you have somebody like Kirsten Beyer who is passionate about Voyager. Mm. And she's fantastic. I mean, you found somebody who took a show that I really was not a fan of on a whole and made that sh those characters something that I really care about. That's how good she is. Writing for, for a television show the writers will sit and watch some of the dailies and start realizing he can't act. He's playing it as if he's in love with her. He's a pain in the ass. This one's always showing up drunk. What the hell is that? So their writing sometimes will reflect how they feel about the actors. Yeah. I don't have that problem. I, you know, it's one of those things I always remind people. Nobody's going to come knock on your door and go, why does she have 17 lines more than me? Right, exactly. So it's like they, everyone is a great actor. Everyone's a great player. You can make them as good as they are, as bad as they want to be. I mean, it, it's really hard to do that if you have an actor who's, to quote an old New York Times review, whose acting's range is from A to B. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I... I've talked to the below-the-line and above-the-line people on Star Trek, and there were actors that they just were like, I 
Why did they get cast? And their parts got smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, and then there were actors that got cast and their parts got larger and larger because they just were that good. I was a good actor in a book. I have endless production, as many as you want. You want to have 35 (laughs) guest stars? I mean, that was part of the fun of the fall. I was like, okay, you can play. I want X, Y, and Z, but you can't say you can't have the Enterprise because everyone can use everyone else's pieces as long as it's possible to do that. So it's doing a book means, you know, but I also take it seriously that, you know, Voyager fans, this is the only place you can get these books. Right, exactly. To me, it's like, this is, as a Voyager fan, this is a story I would want to read. Right. As a TNG fan, I mean, as, as TNG was sort of like not in the move the character forward television production era, I mean, that is the big thing in the books is that these these characters can't be trapped in amber. They have to move. They have to change. They have to evolve because otherwise, boring, boring. Yeah, that's that's why I, I'm really I, I for for me too. I, I'm I'm with you. You know, I, I want to see my Deep Space Nine back because I, I miss it being front and center in, in a novel so um, I can totally relate um, so this makes me wonder I mean are we going to be getting the novel I think that every Star Trek fan really has been clamoring for for I you know goodness years since Voyager ended when are we going to be getting our you know novella e-novella Captain Proton series <laughs> I have a writer who has proposed that he needs to get his tushy in gear I know that writer Me and too. Dayton Ward. I'm talking to you. You <laughs> you get those books and you get them done because I love Captain Proton and I want yeah. to see those books. Uh, you you're talking to the person. There was a Voyager calendar that had a Captain Proton movie poster in it. That was me. Oh wow! Well. Wow, that's awesome. That's cool. great. It, it, it's also one of those things. Now that Dayton Ward is a New York Times best-selling author, it'll make it easier for me to pitch. What, what I said to the author was, look, let's talk to Kirsten. Let's try to tie this into something she's doing and then do a Captain Proton story. And then let's see what the numbers are like. And if there's more, if the numbers are good enough, we'll do more. I mean, the ebook That's thing from Pocket with doing original ebooks, it was sort of like, yeah, buy a couple. Like, yeah, buy a couple. And then when I didn't have any more, they were like, That's all you bought? I went, a couple is three. Although <laughs> oh, well, it was in my house, could I have a couple of cookies? One, two, three. That's three. <laughs> How do you get four? You don't. Go away. So I kind of sort of got sucked into the full vortex of trying to make sure all those pieces were moving, plus still buying stuff for 2014. So I have bought more. You know, right there, you have John Jackson Miller's Titan. You have yep. QR, Cordially Uninvited. You have the Lust, Platinum, Lost, the Q story. I said, God, that title would kill me. Thank God I don't have to present that at sales conference. I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that. so I'm buying more stuff, but I'm also trying to do like I did before where you go like, you know, let's have a between-the-page story or something that is just, fun. I mean, the Gork story is just, you know, 
is Quark, and Quark being Quark, you know, he's, there's never enough profit because he's an old school Ferengi, and he wants the latest version of Vulcan Love Slaves, and he's having a problem getting it. So, you know, let's do a story, just do a straight little Ferengi story. You know, and the Picard Crusher Wedding has been one of those things that's been sort of like, I have little cheat sheets that I have. I prepare for the authors, like, you know, this is what the Typhon Pact is, this is who the President of the Federation is. So it's like, you know, yes, you should, for new authors, you should read the book, but look, look, cheat sheet. And the, the Picard Crusher Wedding has been one of those things, like, this is what it is, and then I was talking to an author, and I'm like, because ah, I don't want to do a whole novel. I go, okay. I've always liked you. I go, um, okay. What about, you know, and we, what I do is, is I bounce ideas back and forth with authors about working with things and doing things. And, you know, it, it's a very cooperative thing. It's like, I trust them. What do you want to do? Let's have a little fun with this. And it goes back and forth. So, you know, I, I also think of an author as having fun writing a book. Except for the end right. of you get better writing. Yeah, right. Yeah. As much as Dayton was doing his beautiful mind thing, you can tell he loved writing from history shadow. Definitely. That was a that was a fantastic oh, book. Yeah, um, okay. I, I, I seriously I got like a quarter of the way in and I asked him, What does your office look like? <laughs> um, I really did have this vision of him with papers and lines and things hanging from the ceiling. I'm like, this, this is really, really kind of amazing. And, you know, I'm like, wow. I was like, that, but that book didn't hit the Times list with criminal. But he made it to hear it. Well, hey, this this brings me to um, I think that just the last question, and you were talking about um, you know planning years and and kind of what's going around it. So the fiftieth anniversary of Star Trek is in two years. Um, 16, 2016, That's Friday's so, lunch meeting. Awesome. Oh, so yeah. any do you have any ideas like any tidbits you want to kind of like just share that you're thinking about doing for for the big celebration of 50 years of Star Trek? No, I don't want to share. Okay. <laughs> no, I understand. <laughs> I have an idea. Um, I have to check a couple more things to see if it's been done before. And um, it's, you know, and, and then I got to go to CBS and go, hi, Margaret wants to do something silly. You, you know, I mean, whenever we want to do, like, when I allowed David George to destroy Deep Space Nine, we asked before he did that outline, we asked up front, we're going to destroy the Cardassian slave ore mining station. Do you have a problem with it? No. Okay. I like how you phrased it to them. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like, but it's also... Because the books are not constrained by, I want everyone to feel like at any point, anything could happen. Nobody's safe. Nobody's safe. We could do anything. I've been asked, can I kill someone? So I go, if it serves the story, live it up. What? I said, show me the outline. Give me some something so I can go to CVS. You want to kill someone? So if it serves the story, okay. Yeah. 
you know, I, it's, to me, it's the storytelling. That's the most important thing is let's have a good story. Let's have something, you know, the, you know, Star Trek fans should get a good story. Yes. I have, I have great actors and limitless production budget. Let's tell a great story. Let's, when they finish the book, they should go, damn, that should be a Showtime series. Absolutely. If we could figure out a way that everybody would, like, in the fourth season of the show, is that when Avery shaved his head? Was that six? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's I, I, want, I want bold Avery with the beard. Um, but he's like, you know, if we could, you know, we, that's what I want. I want what I wanted as a fan. I want a really mm. great Star Trek story that makes sense and isn't just done because I'm being a cheap, sleazy mm. marketing and, and trying to sell books. I want a good story. I mean, that's, that, as a Star Trek fan, when I was saving my money up and not eating lunch, if I bought a book that sucked, I was not happy. Right. I was not a happy camper. I went hungry for this many days for a crappy book. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It wouldn't take books back then. I mean, you know, it was too much of a schlep mm. to them all. I, I want a good story. I want mm. somebody who's going to tell me, you know, but a story that's also true to that series. I mean, the worst thing I can say to somebody on, when, if they pitch me a TOS story is, you know, he's acting like Janeway. <laughs> that's awesome so no real hints then for the 50th anniversary schedule but you said it's Friday's lunch meeting so maybe maybe sometime in the coming months you, you might be able to tease something if we're really nice to you I have I still have to finish buying 2006 I still have to finish buying 2015 I have one two I have two open slots I still have to fill. Mm. And then I can actually start buying for the anniversary year. Excellent. Um, so it's, it's one of those things like books are done so far in advance. Yeah. I mean, even worse than when I was on staff. I mean, we were promoting Destiny at San Diego Comic Con, and none of the books had come out yet, and Dave was working on book three. And the guys at IDW came to us and went, you know, uh, maybe we'd like to do something. I'm like, uh, he's almost done writing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, we, we do books are done so far in advance, and there's so much there. I mean, it was sort of like, you know, you know, that was the, the world I'd go around and go, you think the Borg were bad? Uh-uh. You don't know how bad the Borg were. There's a boogeyman under the bed that's trying to drag you down. <laughs> you know the boogeyman that you give your little baby brother to because he promises you if you give him your baby brother, he won't take you. So he eats your baby brother and then he eats you. That's the Borg and Destiny. People do that. So, you know, but the fall was sort of like this is the new status, this is the mm. Federation. There's the Typhon Pass. Right. There's the two different branches in Starfleet, but we're doing exploration, but still with that as a running story. This is mm. we're doing exploration stories. Captain Picard and the Enterprise are being sent out to explore and seek out. I mean, this is we're going to be explorers. Yes. Yeah. I do take my cues sometimes from movies. 
including never let them promote you off that bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all heard that that line endlessly. <laughs> of course, Mr. Riker hasn't heard that, so he's been promoted off that bridge. Yeah, poor Riker. Uh, well, no, hope it, that... it, gives you, it gives you a lot of fish out of water stories. It gives yeah, you... Yeah, that's true. It changed is wonderful because, man, the stuff you can tell about that, very interesting. I mean, nobody is trapped in amber. Nobody is absolutely positively never going to do X, Y, or Z. Mm. If it's a good story and there's a good justification and CBS says yes, we're going to do it. Hmm. Well, Margaret, um, thank you so much for coming on to, to talk with us. It's It's been so much fun to just really hear about the, the inner workings of what it takes to, to, to keep the flame alive. And, and I really have to thank you because, you know, uh, as we talked, it, you know, this is the only place that we get Voyager and, uh, you know, Deep Space Nine and, and Enterprise now and TNG and, all of these shows that we all loved, um, this is the place where they exist now. And um, I'm, I'm so happy that, you know, the number one, that the, the people behind the books and then the, the writers themselves as well, you know, we, we can tell that you guys love this and it really shines through. And I think the consistent and amazing work that you've been doing and obviously I think really shows up in the fact that as you said, four out of the five books of the fall were New York Times best-selling books, and uh, it, it shows that people still want to read a good Star Trek story. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's my pleasure to work on something I love. I love Star Trek. I've loved it since I was that little girl sick in the summertime, sitting there watching Charlie X, going, wow, this is really great. I have to watch all of these. And each one of the shows made me feel like that. This is really great. And I'm lucky enough that I get to actually work on something that I'm a fan of. Mm. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate you coming on. And I'll look forward to, to getting to have you on again. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks a lot, Margaret. Thank you. Well, Matthew, that was really interesting to hear about the editorial side of the books and especially all the information we were able to learn about what's coming up in 2015. Of course, also things at the end of this year and the fact that there's a meeting about the 50th anniversary coming up on Friday, lunch meeting this week about that over there. Um, and for me, of course, just the idea that there is something going on internally maybe we should have audiobooks again. I was really happy to hear that. Yeah, I was really excited to hear a, a lot of that information. Um, it, it's going to be so much fun. I mean, we're getting an Quark ebook about him trying to acquire the new Vulcan love slave. I, <laughs> right. I swear, I feel like we've made that as a joke right. on the show, Chris. I feel like the other side of the page, if we had put that out there, we could have gotten royalty rights for this. What were we thinking, Chris? Well, I'll tell you, if, if listeners only knew all the things we talk about before our shows, ideas like that have been thrown out so many times. All the ideas we have for stories that, yeah, that that's it's like a Trek of film creation right there. 
Yeah, so that's going to be great. Um, I, I loved getting to talk to to Margaret. I'm, I'm so glad that she came on. And, and man, just makes me really excited, one, for this year. And it sounds like 2015 is going to be a stellar year for Star Trek literature as well. So, you know, it just makes me want to say this again, Chris. Um, and uh, Margaret talked about this in the interview. This is the only place that we get the Prime Universe. And for those of you who listen to this show, you know what the Prime Universe is. So go out there. Find the books, support the books, um, you know, get them on your iPad uh, or your, you know, your Kindle, your Nook, whatever you're reading them on. Um, go find them in a bookstore for for the love of all that's holy. <laughs> um, because, you know, if we don't keep buying them, um, then we, we don't get the stories. Right. And yeah. I think the fall is, is showing us there's still great stories out there to be told. Especially in the 24th century, uh, we got the Enterprise books, we, you know, that Christopher L. Bennett's been doing. Um, and we've had some great TOS books, like last year, Dayton Ward's from History's Shadow was just ridiculously fantastic. So we need more of these books to be coming out, um, and it does keep the flame alive. So uh, let's make that happen. Most definitely. Well, Margaret was just a delight to talk to and so much great information, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Pitching a piece of the action movie. I think we can definitely they might, say that the, they might go that the that, Transformers though. planet doesn't work. They might go for that. Would you go for that, Drew? I mean, personally, I would shy away from it. Because then you'd be, or would you be, shy uh, away it would from be, it? You're a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> Earl Grey, William T. Riker. Imagine now if he had come back with a goatee or mutton chops. We could have been a very different Riker. Hipster Riker. Number one, are you wearing glasses? <laughs> no, it's Jordy's visor. I just... <laughs> I'm reading a pad that you've never heard of before. The Ready Room. Inside a lot time with Mark Cushman. But something else that you'll find out in book two is that they almost didn't have Leonard Nimoy and Mr. Spock for season two of Star Trek. Uh, his agent wanted more money for Leonard and for good reason, because when he signed on to do the series, he was supposed to be uh, a supporting actor. And yet he was getting more fan mail than even William Shatner, who was the star of the show. Yet uh, only a fraction of the money. The Orb. Move along home as a TOS episode. Cisco comparing first contact to dating girls felt like something that Kirk would do as well. You know, teaching Charlie Evans about girls and Charlie X, something like that. To the journey! Voyager on Blu-ray. I know that there's been some outtakes done because you can find clips of them on YouTube. Mm -hmm. But there's got to be more. And I want to see them all. Warp 5. Andorians on Enterprise. And so they took this idea where they had antenna and they took this idea where they were blue and from someplace cold, or I don't even know if they were someplace cold when they were on the TOS. And they 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 just made everything better. Commentary, Trek Stars. Iris Stephen Bear recap. I think when you look at the, the work that was done on, on Deep Space Nine, what becomes apparent is a group of people who do not feel like they need to do what the original series did in order to accomplish what the original series accomplished. Melodic Treks. Apparently, at one point, Patrick Stewart felt he might be able to actually play on screen himself, although he was 
delicately pointed out to him by Bros Martin that he wasn't up to that standard quite yet. Literary Treks. Peaceable Kingdoms with Peyton Ward. I don't really remember why I was the one chosen to back cleanup, other than the fact that I think Margaret, our editor, wanted Picard and the Enterprise E to factor into the final, uh, the final installment, and she had already tapped me to write that story. Matter stream. Star Trek Axanar with Alec Peters and Richard Hatch. If you've ever experienced war or any kind of um, conflict, where everything is life and death. There's a certain kind of um, resolve, truth, experience that you come to that um, I don't think too many people can understand or ever really, really um, empathize with. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can stream or download from the website. So check out all the shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. Also, if you'd like to contact us and share your thoughts on the books, anything we discussed today, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about Star Trek, about the books, the comics, anything you want to discuss You'll find it all right over there. Then in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and on Twitter, where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek under username trekfm. All right, Matthew, when you're not uh, getting ready to pitch your own latest idea to Margaret, where can people find you? Well, Chris, you can find me on MattRushing02. That's on the Twitter face, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Tweeting about all sorts of different things. Obviously not tweeting about sports ball anymore. Nope. uh, But otherwise, whatever. Yeah. um, Yeah, no. You know. Um, Not much I can do about that. Uh, But hey, still have a a horse in the race. I'm going to pull for Peyton Manning. The guy needs another uh, Super Bowl. So go Broncos. Yeah. and uh, I got my own personal blog, so 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. And if you're like me and you really like Deep Space Nine and you're like Chris and you really like Deep Space Nine, then you can join us on The Orb every week where we talk about Deep Space Nine literally all the time. That's all we do on the show. Um, so that's the place you're going to want to join us. Now, Chris, when you're not um, just wading through pages and pages of Star Trek books or listening to copious amounts of audiobooks, where can we find you? I do that a lot, no doubt about that. But you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, of course, besides doing the orb with you, Matthew, you can find me on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. You can find me on The Ready Room every week, where I'm joined by hosts from all over the network and special guests as we discuss all five live-action Star Trek series, as well as Star Trek news. And I have my own interview show as well called Matterstream, where I talk to scientists and writers and actors and designers and all sorts of other people about stories that are loosely related to Star Trek or inspired by Star Trek. And so you can find that as well. And if you go to trek.fm slash PD, you'll find the links to all these different shows that, that we all do all around the network. 
Before we let you go, we'd like to remind you once again about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. You can get The Return by William Shatner, read by William Shatner, as we discussed in News Today, or anything else that you want to pick up over there. Get a book absolutely free just for trying Audible. No commitment there. If you don't like Audible, if you decide it's not for you after your 30-day trial, you can keep that audiobook and uh, go on with your life. But you're going to love Audible. You're going to want to stick with it. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm to sign up today. And that'll help us keep literary treks coming to you every week. And we really thank Audible for their support of the network. And another thing you can do is to get some aliens. We have original alien illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. You can get them as badges or art prints, and you'll find them at trek.fm slash donate. There are different levels for you to choose from to contribute to the network, and your donations help us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring all of our shows to you each week. So check those out, trek.fm slash donate, and we really thank you for helping us keep the network going. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.